Open your Bibles, if you will, now to Genesis chapter 36. We are in our final uh, message of this portion of Genesis, and then we will will come back to it again at a later time. Um, This finishes off the the genealogy of of Isaac, and we will then, next next time we get back into Genesis, be considering the genealogy of, of, of Jacob, and particularly how that shows itself in the life of Joseph. More than likely, you have been caught in a situation where you are in a conversation that you could not get out of, uh, and you found it extremely boring, perhaps. And if that's the case, then it, it, it also may be possible, maybe even probable, that a part of that conversation was someone detailing to you their own genealogy, their grandparents, their great-grandparents, on down the line for generations and generations. Our own genealogies uh, are often exciting or interesting, but often the genealogies of others are dreadfully boring. (laughs) Our eyes glaze over as we begin to listen to those. And so as we come to... Chapter 36 of Genesis, and your pastor is nervous about reading the whole thing out loud because there are difficult names to pronounce. We don't recognize many of them. Um, It's a long chapter. There's a danger. You'll get bored as we read through this together. But we, we must recognize that while these may seem uninteresting to us, they would be of great interest to the Israelites who were reading this. They were about to enter the promised land. They would recognize these names, some as their enemies, some as almost like brothers. But what they would also notice from this passage is that although Esau had become great, the covenant people were destined to become greater still. If God was faithful to keep his promises to Esau, who was outside the covenant line, how much more faithful would he be to keep his promises to Israel, the people of God's own possession. And we must recognize, really, as a part of God's covenant people, this is a part of our genealogy. This is a part of our story. And so we must take interest in that, at least for that uh, reason. But God has also given this, this is a part of God's word, He has given this for our instruction and for our good, for our benefit. And here's, I I think there are two uh, big lessons that we can draw from this. One of, uh, of them is that this is for our encouragement. This is for our encouragement. If God is kind and good to the unrighteous, to those who rebel against His word and reject the, the, the gospel, reject His promises, how much more faithful will He be to keep His promises to those of us who are in Christ? If God has been merciful to us as sinners and He is merciful to sinners, then how much more kind will He be to us now that we have been reconciled to Him through the blood of Christ? So one, there's an encouragement here, but also there is a warning here. And it's a warning here of of what, what a dead end the greatness of this world is. We see that here that Esau is great in his progeny, and yet his genealogy is a dead end. He is outside of the covenant. He is outside of the promise. And there's a warning here for us in pursuing or being drawn away from God because of the world. 
So let's look together at our passage, Genesis chapter 36, and bear with me as I read this. Give me your patience. There are, these are the generations of Esau, that is, Edom. Esau took his wives from the Canaanites, Ada, the daughter of Elon the Hittite, Oholibama, the daughter of Anna, the daughter of Zibion the Hivite, and Basimath, Ishmael's daughter, the sister of Nebaoth. And Ada bore to Esau Eliphaz, Basimath bore Reuel, and Oholibama bore Jeush. Jalam and Korah. These are the sons of Esau who were born to him in the land of Canaan. Then Esau took his wives, his sons, his daughters, and all the members of his household, his livestock, all his beasts, and all his property that he had acquired in the land of Canaan. He went into a land away from his brother Jacob, for their possessions were too great for them to dwell together. The land of their sojournings could not support them because of their livestock. So Esau settled in the hill country of Seir. Esau is Edom. These are the generations of Esau, the father of the Edomites, in the hill country of Seir. These are the names of Esau's sons, Eliphaz, the son of Ada, the wife of Esau, Reuel, the son of Basimath, the wife of Esau. The sons of Eliphaz were Teman, Omar, Zepho, Gatam, and Kenaz. Timnah was a concubine of Eliphaz, Esau's son. She bore Amalek to Eliphaz. These are the sons of Ada, Esau's wife. These are the sons of Reuel, Nehath, Zerah, Shammah, and Mizah. These are the sons of Basimath, Esau's wife. These are the sons of Oholibamah, the daughter of Anna, the daughter of Zibion, Esau's wife. She bore to Esau Jeush, Jalam, and Korah. These are the chiefs of the sons of Esau. The sons of Eliphaz, the firstborn son of Esau, the chiefs, Timon, Omar, Zepho, Kenaz, Korah, Gadam, and Amalek. These are the chiefs of Eliphaz in the land of Edom. These are the sons of Ada. These are the sons of Reuel, Esau's sons. son, the chiefs, Nahath, Zerah, Shammah, and Mizah. These are the chiefs of Reuel in the land of Edom. These are the sons of Basimath, Esau's wife. These are the sons of Oholibamah, Esau's wife. The chiefs Jeush, Jalam, and Korah. These are the chiefs born to Oholibamah, the daughter of Anna, Esau's wife. These are the sons of Esau, that is, Edom, and these are their chiefs. These are the sons of Seir, the Horite, the inhabitants of the land. Lotan, Shobal, Zibion, Anna, Dishan, Ezer, and Dishan. These are the chiefs of the Horites, the sons of Seir in the land of Edom. The sons of Lotan were Hori and Hemam. And Lotan's sister was Timnah. These are the sons of Shobal, Alvan, Manahath, Ebal, Shepho, and Onam. These are the sons of Zibion, Aya, and Anna. He is the Anna who found the hot springs in the wilderness as he pastured the donkeys of Zibion, his father. These are the children of Anna, Dishan and Oholibama, the daughter of Anna. These are the sons of Dishan, Hemdan, Eshban, Ithran, and Cheran. These are the sons of Ezer, Bilhan, Zavan, and Akan. These are the sons of Dishan, Uz, and Aran. These are the chiefs of the Horites, the chiefs of Lotan, Shobal, Zibion, Anna, Dishan, Ezer, and Dishan. These are the chiefs of the Horites, chief by chief in the land of Seir. These are the kings who reigned in the land of Edom before any king reigned over the Israelites. 
Bela the son of Beryl reigned in Edom, the name of his city being Dinhabah. Bela died, and Jobab the son of Zerah of Basra reigned in his place. Jobab died, and Husham of the land of Temanites reigned in his place. Husham died, and Hadad the son of Bedad, who defeated Midian in the country of Moab, reigned in his place, the name of his city being Evith. Hadad died, and Samla of Masrekah reigned in his place. Samla died, and Sheol of Rehoboth on the Euphrates reigned in his place. Shal died, and Baal-Hanan, the son of Akbor, reigned in his place. Baal-Hanan, the son of Achor, died, and Hadar reigned in his place, the name of his city being Pau. His wife's name was Mehetabal, the daughter of Matred daughter of Mezahab. These are the names of the chief of Esau, according to their clans and their dwelling places, by their names, the chiefs Timnah, Alva, Jetheth, Oholibama, Elah, Pinyan, Kinez, Timan, Mibzar, Magdiel, and Iram. These are the chiefs of Edom, that is, Esau, the father of Edom, according to their dwelling places in the land of their possession." Everyone take a big sigh. We're, I, I completed it. Uh, I think people listening back over the recording may hear little clippets of that and wondering if I am speaking in tongues, perhaps reading all those odd, difficult names. May God bless the reading of his holy word. Now, what is there for us in this passage? Is there anything here for the people of God, for our instruction, for our benefit? We might feel like this is the appendix you never read, or this is the user agreement that you never read, and yet you know it's important. I think there is something here, as I've already hinted at. There's an encouragement here uh, to remember God's faithfulness to those who are connected to the covenant and yet not in the covenant. How much more faithful will he be to us? And yet, I think there's perhaps even stronger here, there is this warning to us. There is a warning here in the life of Esau and his lineage. Now think about what the nature of uh, a warning is. I think about the the terrible story uh, from Orlando uh, recently, the Disney Resort with the little boy that took place. And the sign that was there in the uh, little... Uh, I don't know if this is a creek or a, the body of water, was no swimming. Now, that's, if, if there are alligators in that body of water, no swimming is not a very good warning sign. Now, I'm not trying to assign blame, but for the purposes of this illustration, warnings are there for our protection. They are there for our good. They are there to, to stop us in our tracks, to stop us from going in that body of water. Warning, alligators are here. Do not get anywhere near this. And this is a warning for us. Esau's life is a warning to us. And it's this. Greatness without God is a dead end. Greatness without God is a dead end. This is what Esau's genealogy basically is, a dead end. And friends, if you pursue the things of this world and the greatness of this world and the pleasures of this world, neglecting the things of God outside of the covenant of God, your life will be a dead end. The world makes great promises, but it cannot keep them. So first I want you to see the greatness of Esau. You'll remember from chapter 25 
that Rebekah inquired of the Lord concerning the turmoil going on within her when she was pregnant. And the Lord said, There are two nations in your womb, and two peoples within you will be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other. There's this idea that both of them will be strong, and the older shall serve the younger. Both would be notions, both would be great, but the older would serve the younger. Jacob's greatness came from the fatness of the land, but we know Esau's greatness came by his sword. He had become great. Remember, it was Esau who had how many men coming to Jacob? 400 men, like soldiers, who traveled to meet Jacob. And when Jacob offered his exorbitant gifts to Esau, what did Esau say? I have plenty. I don't need any of your gifts. I don't need that. I have plenty myself. And here in verse 6 6 and 7, we read that their possessions were too great, Esau's and Jacob's, for them to dwell together. The land of their travelings could not even support them. They had so much livestock, so many possessions. And at the close of Isaac's life, the author does here what he has done previously. He outlines the heritage of the sons. So when Abraham dies, the author gives the generations of Ishmael, his son, and he gives the generations of Isaac. Uh, Now, of course, Isaac's the one through whom the, the promised offspring will come. So he gets a much longer section dealing with his generation. And in the same way, Esau just gets this chapter and the rest of Genesis has to do with the lineage of Jacob. But this is a way of paying honor to the person of Esau. He is not in the line of promise and yet he is connected to the promise by virtue of being the son of Isaac. And his heritage is outlined here. So let me walk you through just briefly so you can see the structure of this passage. Going through the names, it may have been difficult to get a sense of where we were. Uh, In verses 1 through 8, the author explains a brief description of Esau's Canaanite wives and sons and his movement away from the land of promise into Seir. In verses 9 to 14, we read about Esau's sons and grandsons. Uh, In verses 15 to 19, it's almost the same list except for Korah and Amalek are added. So this list in 15 to 19 are the chiefs instead of simply the sons. So what the author is doing here is he's not simply being redundant. He's wanting to show something. He's aiming to show the progress and development of Esau and his people. The progress and development of them becoming a great nation. Not only does he have many sons... They were the heads of these tribal clans. There's some strength here. There's some organization here. They're growing. But the author continues on in verses 20 through 30. He lists the sons of Seir, the Horite. Now these are the inhabitants of the land of Seir. So not only does Esau have sons and chiefs, he has enough strength to dispossess these people who are in the land. He has growing power. He has political organization, and he has this growing military strength. And then in the remaining verses, the author shows that Esau developed into a nation. He does this by outlining the kings that were a part of Esau's lineage, even before Israel had their first king. There is greatness here. There is royalty here. So this chapter would be a reminder to the people of Israel who this nation Edom was. You'll notice several times the author makes sure we know that Esau is connected to Edom, that Edom flows from the person. Edom, the nation, flows from the person Esau. 
In some ways, these nations would be like brothers who can't stop fighting. They keep bickering back and forth. There's this kind of bond of, of brotherhood between these nations, and yet they're at each other's throat. Uh, they would battle back and forth for many years, just like Jacob and Esau did in their mother's womb. So Esau has possessions, strength, prestige. He's growing into a great uh, nation. There is greatness here, but I want you to notice something about his greatness, and particularly just two aspects of Esau's greatness. First, Esau's greatness was worldly. Esau's greatness was worldly. Notice the worldliness of his greatness. What is, life, what is Esau's life characterized except for worldliness rather than godliness? Uh, a desire for the things of this world rather than a desire for the things of God and spiritual things. So when he came in from the field and he was famished, what did he do? He despised his birthright and sold it to Jacob for a bowl of that red stuff. And again, by Jacob's trickery, he, left, he, he lost his blessing. He had to settle for the table scraps blessing, the second blessing. But here we're reminded in verse 2 that Esau also took wives from the Canaanites. And this was directly opposed to what his parents wanted for him and what God wanted for the people of God. Now understand, this isn't just kind of a, an in-law uh, relational dispute, Esau marrying these Canaanite women. What's going on here is God's people were to remain pure and separated from the idolatrous people around them. So it would be similar to a Christian marrying someone of a totally different faith, a, a Muslim or a Jew or someone of no faith, an atheist. And this is uh, commanded throughout Scripture that we are not to do that, that we are to, uh, that we are to marry other believers that we might not be led astray into idolatry and unbelief. And this was the case for Esau. But Esau was driven by his passions rather than the promises and commands of God. He was driven by his own desires, what captivated his heart, and what captivated his heart was not the promises of God. In verses 6 and 8, we read that Esau left his brother in the land of promise and settled in the hill country of Seir. We remember a... a a previous situation in Genesis 13, you remember Abraham and Lot. They had to separate for the same reason. The land could not contain all of their wealth, their peoples and possessions. And Abraham deferred to Lot and said, take whichever land you want. You choose one and I'll go the other way. And Lot lifted up his eyes and saw how good the Jordan Valley was, like the garden of the Lord, the text says. And he journeyed east. Always a reminder, journeying east, always a reminder of Adam who was cast out east of the garden. And in a similar way, Esau moves east away from the land of promise, away from Jacob and the covenant promise. He journeys east away from God. But his greatness is a worldly greatness. Let us learn from this to beware the seductive appeal of worldly pleasure and greatness. To beware of the seductive appeal of worldly pleasure and greatness. It was what led Adam and Eve astray in the garden, wasn't it? It led Lot away into Sodom and Gomorrah. It led Esau away from his father's blessing in the land of promise. And it leads many people astray today. The seductive appeal of worldly pleasure and greatness Listen to 1 John 
2, 15 to 17. And this is a warning for us. Listen, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and pride and possessions is not from the Father, but from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. You see, ultimately the problem we have when we sin is not simply that we have bad habits. It's not simply that we keep making bad mistakes. There's something deeper which John speaks to here. Esau's problem ultimately was not that his brother was so deceptive and swindled him out of the blessing. Esau had a love problem. He had a love problem. Esau rejected the promises of God for the pleasures and greatness of the world. His eyes were open to the things of the world, but they were blinded toward the things of God. And remember this, brothers and sisters. Esau was the son of Isaac, and he had the covenant sign of circumcision. Think about how close he was to the covenant people. Yet although he had all this going for him, he wasn't circumcised in his heart. And his eyes were not open to see and believe and love the promises of of God. The very reason John gives this command to the church to not love the things of the world is because it is a danger. Do you feel this danger for yourself? Do you sense this danger for yourself? Or perhaps you think you are above this danger, that this is not a problem for you, that worldliness, being swayed by the, the pleasures and the greatness of this world, is not a problem for you. But It is the unguarded gate that is most susceptible to attack. You know that kind of attitude, I don't have anything to worry about, there's no danger here for me, is more characteristic, often anyway, of pride than it is humility. For as Paul says in Galatians 6, 3, if anyone thinks he's something when he's nothing, he deceives himself. There are those who are among not of, but among or around the covenant people of God who are yet uncircumcised in their hearts. They have all the outward signs of being in the covenant family. They've been baptized. They gather together uh, with believers week in and week out. They have a lot of friends who are Christians, a lot in their family who are Christians. There are those who have these covenant signs of being in the family of God and yet are not a part of the family of God. They are not yet uncircumcised in their hearts. And what do I mean by that? Well, as we continue to read the scripture, we see what's necessary for one to be a part of the people of God is circumcision of the heart. That means your heart has been pierced because of your sins, broken over your sins and changed. You've been given a new heart through the proclamation of the gospel. And now you see the things of God as glorious and beautiful. And you trust in Jesus Christ to save you. Those who only have an outward sign of the covenant and yet have not been circumcised of heart have not been cut to their heart over their sins. They haven't received a new heart that loves the things of God and sees Christ as the treasure that He is. So friends, test your hearts in this. This is a great warning to us from the life of Esau. It is possible to be very close to the community 
of believers, very close to the covenant community, but not in the covenant community. So do you, do you think all these warnings in the New Testament are for no reason? No, they are meant for the people of God as a means for keeping us in the covenant or bringing people to repentance and faith, walking in the covenant people. So consider your lives. Spend a moment, pause right here and take account of our lives. Are your thoughts and desires and aspirations in this life any different than those of other faiths? Consider that. Is there anything that distinguishes you from your unbelieving neighbors? Particularly in your affections, the things that you love. The things that you spend your time on. Having a new heart ought to express itself in certain ways. Having the sign of the covenant, in our case, baptism and the Lord's Supper, does not mean automatic faith. It doesn't necessarily mean we are in the covenant. We must have a new heart, and that new heart will express itself in great love for the things of God rather than the things of this world. Or think about this. Think about those of you who are parents. Dad's Father's Day. We can uh, take into account how we're doing as fathers. Think about your children. What kinds of lessons are you teaching them by your words and by your life? What are the things that they see you yearning for day after day? What are the things that they see you are committed to or over committed to? You could ask them. It's a very dangerous thing to do. You could ask them if they're honest with you. What is it that daddy really loves? If you could point out you know, one or two things, what is it that daddy really loves? What is it that mom really loves? What is it that drives her? Or if you don't have children, ask your parents or a close family member. What is it that you would say, I really love? Now, you might be scared to ask that question. I, I kind of am. It's a scary question to ask if someone's going to be honest with you. But the warning of Esau demands that we ask those questions. Beware of the seductive appeal of worldly pleasure and greatness. What advantage will it be to you if you gain the whole world and lose your soul? Or listen, what good will it be if your children grow up to be respectful and successful citizens of this world, an owner of a great business, an amazing sports star, someone with strength or prestige or influence? What will it be? What good will it be if they have all that but are excluded? From the kingdom of heaven. It's a dead end. The things of this world, the greatness of this world, is a dead end and is worthless. As great as Esau became, as great as his progeny is, he was outside the covenant community, outside the land of Canaan, outside the promises of God, outside the kingdom of God. He had many sons, chiefs, kings, and possessions, but he lost his soul. He was great, but his greatness was worldly. Now, now notice that the second, it's, it's related, it's overlapping. The second aspect of his greatness. Esau's greatness was temporary. That's necessarily what it means of being a part of worldliness. But Esau's greatness was worldly and it was temporary. As for Esau himself, he is given just this one more chapter and then he is dismissed from basically the scene of biblical history. 
As Calvin says, Esau is exalted as on a lofty theater, but the whole of his pomp departs like the passing scene of the stage. Show's over for him. Now it is true that his line continues for many years, and yet, as we have noted, Esau and his people are excluded from the line of promise. The Edomites would live on, and yet they would play only a tertiary role in redemptive history. The older would serve the younger. Esau's nation sprang up quickly and had eight kings before Israel had even their first, but its power and importance would fade quickly from the biblical story. And this is another aspect of his greatness. He lived, he became great, and then he died. Israel, on the other hand, had a great and glorious future ahead of it. It would be long in coming, though. It would be slow in coming. Israel creeps out of the ground slowly over hundreds of years. God is slowly growing his people and building them by his sovereign hand. Year after year passes, generation after generation passes, and then finally the offspring of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob would appear, the one who had been promised long ago who would come and bless all nations. Jesus Christ is the offspring of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Consider how long it was in coming. How slow it seemed to to be in coming. And God building his kingdom in fulfilling his promises. Jesus Christ humbled himself and left the splendors of heaven at just the right time. And he was never led astray by the lust of the flesh or the lust of the eyes. He never chased after the bubbles of worldly pleasures. The Puritans talk about worldliness as though uh, the things of this world are like bubbles. They are uh, beautiful. They're shiny. You want to chase after them and grab them, but as soon as you do, they burst into nothing. Jesus refused to chase after the greatness and pleasures of this world. You remember that Satan tempted, tempted Jesus in the wilderness on this very point. Greatness in the world. He was tempted with worldly power and greatness, and yet he refused. He rejected the promises of worldly greatness, and instead, what did he do? He made himself the servant of all. Instead of exalting himself, he humbled himself and became a servant. He humbled himself to suffer and die on the cross as a sacrifice for sin, and he rose from the dead, triumphing over all the forces of evil. And this is the way to enter into the covenant family. Christ is the way to enter into the covenant family. For he was cut off for the sake of his people. He was cut off from God for the sake of his people. He was cast off from the pleasure of God for our sake. And you enter in through him. Through repentance of sin and faith in his name. Faith in Christ alone. That means turning away from your sins and trusting in Jesus to save you. Clinging in faith to Christ who died for sinners. It's not through physical signs on our bodies or physical rituals that we go through. It is through faith in Christ that we become a part of the family of God. And Christ teaches us a contrast here between worldly greatness and heavenly or spiritually spiritual greatness. He teaches us what heavenly greatness is in contrast with worldly greatness. See, true greatness is not found in amassing uh, peoples and possessions 
and chiefs and kings in this world. But true greatness is found through humble sacrifice. So Jesus says in Matthew 20, 26, Whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be your slave, even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And this is the kind of greatness our Savior calls us to, those who are in the covenant family. Now we all affirm this, and we love to quote this verse. But what does it mean for you practically? What does it mean for you practically? It's not enough to simply affirm this truth. We must put it into practice. So consider for you, what does this mean for your family? That you will pursue greatness through humble service in your family. What does it mean for your relationships within the church? That you want to pursue greatness through humble service to your brothers and sisters. What does it mean for your neighbors and those friends and acquaintances of yours that are not Christians? And this, friends, will be true greatness. Humble, servant, humble service is the slow and steady route to greatness. But this is the sort of greatness which will last. Think about it. Isn't this how God grows his people in holiness? Michael Horton says, Christian growth in holiness is more like a garden than a forest fire. Christian growth in holiness is more like a garden than a forest fire. Gardens don't spring up quickly unless you get a chia pet, right? And then it grows up real quickly and then it's gone. It, it dies all of a sudden. Or if you, have, if you know about grass, if you sow uh, annual ryegrass in the fall, you don't have to aerate or tear up the ground or anything. You just toss all the seed out there and in that cool weather, it just springs up. Springs up quickly. Looks beautiful too. But then as soon as the heat and the spring starts coming, it burns up quickly. It fades away. And it's gone. We're we're seeking the growth that comes like gardens. Plants growing inch by inch over days and weeks and months and years. Until they finally produce a rich harvest of fruit. Brothers and sisters, this is how God intends for us to grow. This is how God is growing us. The Christian life and even church life is not always exciting and thrilling, but as we quietly serve one another in humility, as we sit under the preaching and teaching of the word, God is growing us inch by inch over weeks and months and years. Sanctification is not accomplished over a six-week course or Bible study, but through, throughout the course of one's life. God's aim is to grow us not over the course of a week or a month, but over the course of your lifetime, He is growing you. Consider this approach, too, to our witness and serving of others. May the Lord give us fruit from our labors. I pray that He would change the hearts of many in one, one instance of proclaiming the gospel. May the Lord do that. May He save 50 people as we preach the gospel this week and over the next few weeks. But often the way that He works is slowly working in the hearts of people around us, in our neighborhoods, in our sphere of influence, as we, as we love day after day, as we serve day after day, as we speak words of truth and grace to them day after day, as we speak of Christ and what He has done to save sinners, as we pray faithfully for our loved ones over months or years or decades, God is drawing people to Himself. 
Again, these things are not always exciting. We might think of in terms of worldly excitements. We may not always feel like we're where the action is, but this is where the action is. There are no shortcuts in cultivating a garden. Garden. What we're aiming for is to become strong, mature, hardy disciples of Jesus. We are seeking to become a garden which can weather the storms and produce fruit for the glory of God. And it will not come quickly. It will come slowly as we seek greatness through humble service of laying down our lives for the sake of one another. For laying down our rights for the sakes of one another. This is where we will reap the fruit that will last a lifetime and beyond. So contrast Esau's greatness with the greatness that comes through the humble Christ. Esau's greatness was a puff of smoke that quickly faded away, but the greatness that comes through Christ will last for eternity. Eternal life in heaven with Christ through his blood. The treasures of this world will rot and pass away, but faith, hope, and love remain. Your iPhone is great, but you know it's going to fade away. It's going to it's going to become trash one day. And especially it's trash compared to moments spent in loving spiritual conversations with your family and friends. Making money is wonderful, but it's just a number in a bank account and you can't take it with you when you die. It will all pass away. But love expressed through giving your money away for the sake of Christ will last and have an eternal impact. Consider the superiority of spiritual treasure over worldly greatness. J.C. Ryle was an Anglican bishop in the 1800s. Listen to what he says concerning our immortality. Humbling and painful as these truths may sound, it is good for us to realize them and lay them to heart. The houses we live in, the homes we love, the riches we accumulate, the professions we follow, the plans we form, the relations we enter into, they are only for a time. The things you live for now are all temporary and passing away. The pleasures, the amusements, the recreations, the merrymakings, the profits, the earthly callings, which now absorb your, all your heart and drink up all your mind, will soon be over. They are poor, ephemeral things which cannot last. And he, he warns us, he exhorts us, Oh, do not love them too much. Do not grasp them too tightly. Do not make them your idols. You cannot keep them and you must leave them. Set your affections on the things above, not on things on the earth. Let's pray together. Our Father, we pray that you would, you would convict us of how we have loved the things of this world more than the spiritual things which come from your hand. We pray that you would help us to heed this warning of Esau, of his dead-end greatness, being outside of the covenant. We pray that you would help us to heed this warning so that we would flee from worldliness into the arms of our Father, 
who gave his son as a sacrifice for our sins to draw us to himself. We pray that you would remind us of the superiority of the treasure that we have in Christ, that he is our treasure, that he is our joy, that he is our hope, he is our all in all. Help us to find our treasure in Christ. In Christ's name we pray, amen.